need a Bible, raise your hand. We have some people that will give you a Bible in your hand. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 10. We have communion this morning, and then afterwards I'm going to give you a little update on the building, okay? So, um, so go to Exodus chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 1, we read this. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him. Uh, Here in chapter 10, we're actually going to see how God hardens Pharaoh's heart three times. And we have talked about the hardening of the heart, what that means. It's a Hebrew word that actually means to strengthen, to carry out what is already in the heart to do. So he already has a desire to hold on to the children of Israel. He doesn't want to let them go. God just strengthens him to be able to do what it is that he wants to do. God never hardens a person's heart against their will. Okay, and so again, if um, uh, so, he's just hardening the desire that's already present in his heart. So, and he does that three times here. And the reason he does it so he may show the signs of mine before him. He does that so he can continue to bring the other plagues down that he wants to do to be able to show his power before him. And as we're going to find out here, and it's also going to be for future generations. This is going to be an amazing story to tell. And so in verse 2 it says, And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's sons the mighty things I have done in Egypt and my signs which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord." God's work not only is for the sake of Moses' generation, but it's also for the generations to come. They are going to be able to tell this story of the Exodus to educate future generations on how awesome God is. This is what God wants to happen here. Now, every child, and I don't even think it's a child, every person loves a good story. But kids certainly love a good story. And the Exodus story is a great story. And remember, history is his story, right? And so this is a great story that's going to be bring glory to God. Exodus is this great story. It's filled with all these amazing characters and things like, like the wicked tyrant, You know, you have the wicked tyrant, you have Pharaoh, you have the unlikely hero in Moses, you have this bitter conflict that takes on this daring rescue, a victory for a group of people who were once in bondage to this wicked tyrant. You have this spiritual quest in order for the people to go to serve God, and there's a happy ending, and there's lots of miracles, and there's amazing special effects. Now, when you... Look in the history of kind of like Hollywood, and you look at the sci-fi movies of the 50s, you know, and they, and they try and make this monster on Mars, and, and they're, they're in these suits that look really horrendous, and, and, and then the monster comes out and starts going after them, and, and as it turns around, you're going, is that a zipper? Do I see a zipper right there? 
that's the best they could really do for special effects, you know, and, and, uh, or, or you see the, you, you know, the, the lines of moving the monster or whatever, you, you know, and you're just going, well, that's the best they could do. And then Star Wars comes along and you're going, whoa, that's pretty amazing back in the day. And then you see what they're able to do with special effects now. And don't even get me started with AI because it's really gone in a very wicked way, you know, but you, the special effects, you, you like that in a good story. You like that in a good story. And this has, has it all, you know. And so here, the story of the Exodus, it's not like any other story. It's a story for the Israelites, the people of God. It's a story about salvation. It's a story that explains everything we need to know about ourselves. It explains where they came from as the Israelites, as a Jew. They want to know, where did we come from as a people group? Well, you came from out of Egypt. As a people group, they're going to go, so where are we going? You're going to the, the land of promise. You're going to the promised land. Okay, so what's our purpose? To serve and worship the living God. It has it all. It has it all. By sending the plagues down upon Egypt, God is giving his people a story that answers all the big questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? What is the meaning of life? Is there a God? And this story is so important that God wants all the children to hear about it, and he wants Moses to tell it. Now, I want you to go to Exodus chapter 18, just kind of shoot over here a couple of chapters or so. And here we see, after leaving Egypt, after the parting of the Red Sea, Moses' father-in-law shows up there at Mount Sinai, and so Jethro. And so you might recall the last time we saw Jethro is when, um, when Moses is before the burning bush and then goes back to Jethro and says, hey, you know, God's called me to go visit my people and to lead them out of Egypt into the promised land, to, to go to Mount Sinai. And Jethro gives him his blessing. That's the last time he saw Jethro. So now Moses has accomplished everything that he told Jethro he was going to do. And now he's at Mount Sinai and Jethro comes. Jethro, his father-in-law. In verse 8 it says, And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Moses gives testimony. Oh, Jethro, you should have been there. God did this, he did this, he did this, he did this. And then the whole Red Sea, oh my goodness. And now man is coming down from heaven in order to feed us. It's amazing. And he gives this amazing testimony to Jethro. In verse 9, what does that cause Jethro to do? Rejoice. He says, Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro is so excited about what Moses tells him. He rejoices over all that God has done. And it causes him at this point to do what? Have a greater understanding of God. Because in verse 11 it says, Now I know that the Lord, Yahweh, interesting he uses that name, Yahweh is greater than all the gods. For in this very thing in which they behave proudly, he was above them. He was above them. And then what does that cause Jethro to do? Want to give sacrifice. Want to give sacrifice. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. 
it was, te- it was in the telling of this story that helped Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, come to know and have a greater knowledge of God, and it causes him to now want to give sacrifice to this amazing God because of this testimony, this story that has been told. And Moses isn't the only storyteller in Israel. All the fathers of future generations were to tell this story to their children. Every time their, their child would say, Daddy, tell us a story, this is a story that they would tell. They would tell the story of the Exodus. And it's because it had all the things that they needed to hear of their deliverance, their redemption, and their salvation. And as Christians, guess what? We also have an amazing story to tell. Our children, our grandchildren. It is also the story of our Savior, of redemption, our deliverance. We too have a wicked tyrant. His name is Satan. We also have an unlikely hero, God's son, Jesus. And we also have this amazing conflict that takes place. Jesus doing battle with Satan, rescuing his kingdom with his own blood, dying on the cross, triumphing over his enemy as death could not contain him. It's a happy ending for all mankind who put their faith in the work of what the son did on the cross, making a way for us to enter the promised land, to rest with our king forever in a mansion. It's a great story to tell. And it also comes with many special effects because he went into the grave and guess what? The tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. It's an amazing story. And it explains what every child needs to know. It explains that guess what? We are sinners and we need a hero. We need a savior. It explains where we came from, a life of bondage, of sin and misery. It explains that a savior has been given, a way has been made in order, in order for us to make our way back to the creator of the heavens and the earth. And it explains where we're going to live with this creator and his son forever in a mansion prepared for us. It explains who God is, father of mercy and love. It explains why we're here, what our purpose is, and that is to bring glory to God by serving and worshiping Him and being a witness for others. And just like at the time of Moses, the storytelling needs to continue with our own children as well. At home is where it begins. Fathers, mothers, telling your kids about Jesus. That's what it was supposed to be from the very beginning with Moses and all future generations. And that's still the key of what we need to do as a husband and wife, as a godly mother and father, we need to tell our kids about Jesus. As grandparents, we need to tell our grandkids about Jesus. If you're an aunt or an uncle, you need to tell your nephew or niece about Jesus. It's the greatest story ever. It's the greatest story ever. And so God has this event of the Exodus to be handed down from generation and generation. This is his will. This is his desire. Going back here to Exodus chapter 10, verse 3, it says, So Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. It's a great question. Very good question. How long are you going to refuse? How long are you going to refuse to humble yourself before God? The word humble there is a Hebrew word, anah. It means to bow down. It means to bow the knee, to bow down, 
How long are you going to refuse to bow down before me is what God is saying to Pharaoh. And it's a great question. Because to bow down is a sign of respect. To bow down also means that that person has authority over you. Has authority over you. And so he's asking that question. It's interesting back in chapter 1 in the previous pharaohs. um, How that pharaoh made the Israelites his slaves. The scriptures say that he set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. The word afflict means to humble them. To humble them with forced labor. Now you have this pharaoh... When Moses shows up, he says, let my people go. He says, not only am I not going to let your people go, I'm going to increase their burdens. No longer are we going to provide you straw. But now you still have the same number of bricks you have to make, but now you have to go and get your own straw. Adding to their affliction, trying to humble them to show them they bow the knee to him and that he is God. And so now Pharaoh is about to be humbled. And you see, either you... Humble yourself before God, or eventually God will humble you. The choice really is yours. God is very patient. He will do whatever it takes for you to recognize your sin, your need to humble yourself and to repent. However, if you don't see that need to repent, then the need to repent, then God is going to humble you later on. And so the choice is really yours. You could either humble yourself Or be humiliated later on. But the choice is always going to be ours. And this is the choice before Pharaoh. It's why we read in in 1 Peter 5. God resists the proud. But gives grace to the humble. Therefore humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. That he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him. For he cares for you. And so again. He says right here, God resists the proud. So if you're not going to humble yourself, understand that you're at odds with God. And that's, you're never going to win that. You're never going to win that. But if you humble yourself, guess what? He will exalt you. James 4.10, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. He will lift you up. No greater example of this than the, the uh, parable of the prodigal son that goes and realizes that with his prodigal living, he now has to go and in the pig pens and he realizes they're in the pig pens as he's feeding the pigs. He's kind of humbles himself at that point. He repents. He goes back to his father. And before he even gets to say the full apology, the father throws a new robe on him, a new ring, and exalts him what? To that status of sonship. Humble yourself inside the sight of the Lord and he will raise you up. And he does. It's interesting in Exodus 12, 38, when Israel finally leaves Egypt, it says a mixed multitude came with them. The word mixed there is a word that means alien. It means stranger in the land. So it could be uh, other slaves, other people groups, Ammonites or whatever that might be there that were under servitude as well. They go out with them. Okay, There is a possibility it could also mean the Egyptians. That some Egyptians humbled themselves after seeing all those plagues. There were other people other than Israel that left, that humbled themselves under those plagues that left and went with them. And so it talks about the mixed multitude, and we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 12. But it's a very interesting thing. They humbled themselves, and they followed the Lord. In verse 4, after he says, let my people go that they may serve me, there's an interesting two words there. Or else, rut You know, you you don't ever want God to give you that or else, you know. But, but, But there's no compromise with God. He says, 
or else, or else what? If you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I'll bring locusts into your territory. Um, And they shall cover the face of the earth so that no one will be able to see the earth. They shall eat the residue of what is left, which remains to you from the hail. And they shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. They shall fill your houses. Remember, the, the plague of hail was just out in the field. It didn't harm their homes or anything like that. And so here, the locusts are going to come into the house, okay? And it's going to fill your houses, the houses of all your servants, the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither your father nor your father's fathers have seen since the day that they were on the earth to this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. So most countries in, uh, in Asia, uh, as well as central, um, uh, the Middle East, uh, Africa, they know what uh, locusts is all about. You know, they've all, if they grew up there, they've experienced locusts sometime in their life. And they understand and they're aware of their ability to strip vegetation with incredible speed. And so the Israelites would use the locusts as a metaphor quite often when it came to describe any sort of army that's invading their land quickly. Joel does this. The prophet Joel compares a locust to an invading army. So the plague of locusts, even Pharaoh describes as just death in verse 17. And so they understand that when locusts come, it's very devastating, okay? And it's going to bring death through starvation because it's going to eat up everything in sight. So here in Exodus chapter 9, I want you to go over here to verse 24. It's kind of hard to believe after that last plague that there's anything for the locusts to eat, okay? And so in verse 24... It says, so there was hail and fire mingled with hail, so very heavy, that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt, all that was in the field. And we talked about that last week, that the hail only hit in the field. Remember, they were told, hey, bring your cattle out from the field, bring your servants out from in the field. Well, if the hail is going to hit everywhere, why would you bring it out in the field, you know? What difference does it make if hail is going to be everywhere, if it's going to hit your barn, if it's going to hit your stables, if it's going to hit your house, you know, bringing the, the cattle in, bring it, it wouldn't do any good because it would eventually destroy the barns and everything else because this hail was so big, it broke the trees in half, we were able to read last week. And so, again, this hail only hit in the field, made it very, very clear last week. And so it goes on and says, and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. Well, um, this plague here of locusts would probably have to be about six to eight weeks after the hail. Uh, many of the trees are broken at this point. At least all the ones in the, um, uh, all the, ones in the uh, um, field have been broken. Um, but six to eight weeks later, they start to put forth buds and leaves and and so, uh, and, and things like that. Remember, we read in verse 31 of 9, Now the flax and the barley were struck, for the barley was in the head, the flax was in the bud, but the wheat and the spelt were not struck, for they are late crops. Okay? So, what that tells us six to eight weeks later, that's more than enough time for the wheat to, to, uh, to rise up, as well as the spelt, it would probably be about foot high at that time. It's plenty of times for leaves to come back on the trees. It's, uh, um, you know, and so things start to come back after six or eight weeks. If you've lived here in, in Colorado, and spe- specifically Castle Rock, for the last five years, if you've lived here, you have experienced 
pale, okay? And you have probably experienced it so bad that I've experienced this on several occasions where the hail has been so bad, it has stripped every leaf off of every tree that I have. And I have a lot of trees on my property. And it looks apocalyptic, not to mention my cute little, you know, 30 by 30 garden that I have, you know. But about two weeks later, you start to get see the, the, the uh, leaves start to come back on the trees, you know. And depending on what you're growing, some of that stuff starts to come back. If you're growing tomatoes and, and, and hail came, it's gone. It ain't coming back. You gone. You gone. You know, uh, tomatoes are not coming back after hail. But the cucumbers and squash all of a sudden start to grow again. You're starting to get green there again. Those kind of things. And it is, it is and if you're into gardening and stuff like that, you, you just know how much it just hurts and pains you when, you when you hear hail outside and you're going, oh, no. All that effort I put into, you know, doing this. That's why I could never be a farmer, you know. I have this little area that I cultivate that I spend time in. And all of a sudden, (laughs) you know, I mean, it's like, are you kidding me? You're upset. You're angry. And it's like, can you imagine being a farmer and all of a sudden a tornado coming in or something else coming in and ruining all your crops and that's your livelihood? Man, I, I don't have the heart to be a farmer. My heart always goes out when I hear bad weather that destroys crops and stuff like that. So there's more than enough time. Okay, more than enough time. And then that fruit that is going to be ripped away. Well, if you've been to Israel with us, you know when you go there in February with us, we go up to Caesarea Philippi and you see all these fig trees and they're all bare. But they have little bulbs on them. Those are figs. The figs actually are produced before the leaves are. That's why when you see leaves on a fig tree, you know the figs are ripe. Okay, but the figs are produced first. And so, again, more enough time. And, again, the only thing that got destroyed was in the field. They would have trees, and they probably have fruit trees around where they live in, in their houses. And so those weren't touched by the hail, okay? So there's plenty for the locusts to come and eat. But once they eat all that, everything is gone. Everything is gone. So they destroy everything. Verse 7, going back here to chapter 10, it says here, Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? The word snare here in the uh, Hebrew is mokesh. It means noose, hook, or trap. In other words, how long will this man trap us to our own destruction? How long? And Pharaoh's servants begin to kind of be bold before him because like, I'm sorry, did I, did I ask for your opinion? This is Pharaoh you're talking to, you know? And so, but they're bold enough to go, look, we're going to get destroyed one of the way, either by Pharaoh or, or, or all these plagues. So they, they do speak up, and it's kind of a hint of compromise they offer to Pharaoh. Let the men go. Well, everybody's supposed to go, along with all their stuff and all their animals. And so it kind of like he puts that in his ear, and it seems like Pharaoh picks up on it, because in verse 8 it says, So Moses and Aaron were brought again to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones that are going? So, okay, he says, you can go. You and the men can go. You go serve the Lord God. Now, who are the ones going? And Moses said, we will go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds. We will go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then he, Pharaoh, said to them, the Lord, Yahweh, had better be with you when I let you and your little ones go. Beware, for evil is ahead of you. Now, interesting. 
The word evil in the Hebrew is ra. And it means wicked, evil, bad. Okay? However, this is also the name of their sun god, Ra. If that's the case, there are many scholars that believe that what is being said here, in other words, what Pharaoh is saying here is that that your Lord, or Yahweh, better be with you because my God, Ra, is waiting for you, is ahead of you. And he's saying, my God is still better than your God, is what he is saying right there. This is why Pharaoh would continue about their request of taking everyone, saying, not so. Go now, you who are men, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desired. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. So Pharaoh only gives permission for the men to go. Pharaoh offers a compromise, as he did in Exodus eight twenty-five through 26, suggesting at that time you can't go out for three days, you can only go out for one day. Um, but here's the thing, God does not compromise, okay? We have to do all of what he says, okay? He's not into partial obedience. He's into all of what he says. And what Pharaoh wanted is what many of us want in the flesh, a way to give in to God without fully submitting to him. And I've mentioned this before. I come across this a lot, and I know for a fact that I was like this at one time. What's the least I can do and still be okay with God? That's what Pharaoh's asking. And yet, Moses, God through Moses, keeps saying that there is no least you can do. You have to do all of this. You have to obey everything that God says. And there is no compromise with God. God wants all of us, and he wants us to worship, and he wants all of us all the time. And so, um, it's okay for the men to go, but not the children. This is another way that Satan kind of uh, tactics are out there. You know, you'll, you'll have people say, well, that's fine if you're a believer in God, if you're a Christian and everything, but man, I, I just think it's wrong that you would push that, your belief on them. And you just go, wow, that is really up, some upside down thinking right there, you know, because we believe that God is true and uh, we believe that he sent his son to die for us. We believe we're here to serve him, that we're supposed to love him and love others. How can that be a bad thing to pour into kids? How could that be in a bad thing? But people do that. And so um, you do daily devotions with your kids. You do pray with them. You do tell them that story. You pour in your kids about Jesus. You bring them to church. Know that we are going to pour Jesus into them when they're in Sunday school. And just like uh, this last week with VBS, you know, we had kids and family members who invited other kids to be able to, that don't even go here so they can hear about Jesus and be praying for all those little souls that, um, uh, that the seed Uh, has been planted in their hearts that it would germinate and it would grow. Um, Joshua himself said, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua 24, verse 15. It's our responsibility to teach our kids. You know, that's our responsibility. One of the reasons God calls us to be married and be one, he tells us in Malachi 2.15, but did he not make them one, having a remnant of the spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. This is another way to make God's name great is that when we have children, we raise them up to know who he is. Verse 12 of chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come upon the land of Egypt, eat every herb of the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt, 
And the Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And the locusts went up over the land of Egypt, rest in all the territory of Egypt. They were very severe. Previous, there's not been so, there had been no such locusts as they, nor shall there be such after them. That means the worst locust epidemic that's ever happened in Egypt happens at this time. And all locust events after that time aren't as bad as this. Aren't as bad as this. For they covered the face of the whole earth so that the land was darkened. And they ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. Because remember, people could have fruit trees around their dwelling place and that's not where the hail hit. And also remember, if, if hail did hit some of the fig trees, they'd probably start be producing figs at this time. So... Um, so there remained nothing green on the trees or the plants of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, locusts are about two inches, two to three inches long. They have four wings. They're not the prettiest looking creatures, if you were to ask me. We have pictures of some locusts here that would be in that area right there. So um, later on, God said in Leviticus, it was okay to eat locusts. You know, John the Baptist would eat locusts and honey there in the wilderness. Um, I know you're looking at that and going, wow, Dave, lip smacking good. That's probably what you're thinking. But to Ian Sabanja, they are. So Ian, every time he comes here and shares what's going on in Uganda and, and uh, things like that, we always take him out to eat. And Ian is the pickiest eater. I go, dude, you eat locusts. What you're poking and prodding there is called chicken. It's good. Much better. And he goes, no, no, no. He, he says, locusts are delicious. And he, and, he, and he made me promise, says, when you come back, you have to try locusts. I said, I'll, I'll try locusts. I, I guarantee you, I will try locusts. But I also guarantee this. I'm pretty sure about this. My description of it won't be delicious. <laughs> I will probably say, okay, not so bad. You know, but again, hmm, I don't know if I'd want to chump a bunch of those. But Ian loves them. He loves them. In 1988, the Chicago Tribune reported that billions of locusts are moving across North Africa in the worst plague since 1954. He, and it goes on to say, it blotted out the sun and settling on the land like a black ravenous carpet to strip it clean of vegetation. In 2001, the Times in London reported that a billion strong army of locusts were moving in Central Asia. The density of the locusts was approximately... 10,000 locusts per 10 square feet. That's a lot. And the density of them all together, you understand when they rise up and they go, how it will block out the sun. And then when they land, it, it, it carpets where they land. In August 6 of 2020, East Africa has seen the worst swarms of locusts in many decades. It is still devastating today it causes much harm economic hardship and it's why pharaoh calls it death in verse 17 in exodus 10 verse 16 it says then pharaoh called for moses and aaron in haste and said i have sinned against the lord your god and against you well this is the first time he mentions moses in this i've also sinned against you um okay but he has confessed uh to god before uh this would be the second time he he 
says that I have sinned, but it's the first time he says it against Moses. In verse 17, now therefore, please forgive my sin only this once. Okay. Uh, what, what that means is that this is the one and only uh, time that he is, he is going to confess that he has done wrong. Okay. Um, and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. So he went out from Pharaoh and treated the Lord, and the Lord turned a very strong west wind, which took the locusts away, blew them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in all the territory of Egypt. So as quickly as God brought them in, he, he took them out. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go. Again, this is a false confession that he had before. There's no action of repentance. There's no change of behavior. So it's not true repentance. Um, and again, every single one of these plagues is against one of the gods of Egypt and, and several, okay? And so for this one, it would be Osiris. Osiris is the god of fertility, the god of agriculture, the god, god of afterlife, the god of the dead, the resurrection life, the god of vegetation. It's one of the reasons why when we show him right here, he always has green skin, okay? It speaks of the vegetation, speaks of the agriculture, um, uh, always has a pharaoh's beard, partially mummy-wrapped at the legs, wearing a distinctive crown, holding a symbolic crook and flail. Um, and so always wearing this uh, red belt. And the reason it's red and not black is because he wasn't really good at martial arts. Um, and so, I mean, it looks like a gi, right? The way they tie it and hangs down there. I, I, I thought it did. And so, uh, so there's your Osiris right there. Okay, that's what he looks like. Um, now watch and listen to this next plague. No warning. No warning with this one. Okay. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, and there, they, there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. Have you ever been in such a dark place you can feel it? So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, There was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwelling. So from Goshen, they're able to look over there and just see this thick blackness. And they couldn't see on the other side of the delta. They could not see anything over there. It was so dark. It was so dark. The word darkness here is koshek. It means the dark means obscurity, misery, destruction, death. The word felt here is mashesh, and it means to grope. It means to feel. So you feel this darkness all around you, and it brings about this misery, this, this thought of death is coming to you. And it was like that for three days. Now, when we visit Israel, we always take the group into the old city, and, and from there we go to a place called Hezekiah's Tunnel, and so Hezekiah's tunnel is uh, when Hezekiah um, uh, d- dug a trench and a tunnel into the city from the Gihon Springs so that they had running water that would come into the, uh, the city. That way, if anybody attacks them, they have fresh water and they can hold out for a long time. Um, and so it's an engineering marvel because they started on one end of the city and the other end of the city and they started tunneling and chipping away and somehow they found each other in the middle. They didn't go from one and do that. There's a reason for that. I forget what that was. 
okay? But they went from this, and then they kind of met in the middle. And for them to be able to do that is, is an engineering marvel of how to do that. So when you go to Hezekiah's tunnels, you can walk through the dry tunnels if, you have claustrophob- if you're claustrophobic. Um, and the dry tunnels are about as big as this, you know. And you can look down into the other tunnels and some other archaeological things that they have discovered uh, in that area. Um, and so you can walk down, and it's nice and dry, and, and you end up at the Pool of Siloam. Or you can go into the wet tunnel. And the wet tunnel is about half of what this middle aisle is in, in width, okay? So it's maybe three feet at the most, okay, is the width of, of the tunnel. And so it doesn't go up very high as well. And so water is running through it from the Gihon Springs. And so when you first get into it, it it's a little chilly. It gets up to about the knees for the first 50 feet. And then it's mostly ankle deep for the rest of the way. But it is pitch black. And so we usually have these little headlamps on to be able to walk through it or, or little flashlights that we give to everybody before they go in. But there's always a group of people, usually it's John Kaufman, that leads this group of people that just want to grope through it and just want to go through it without any light on, okay? And so we usually let them go first. And then I'll take the next group because mom didn't raise no fool. And so I'll have the little headlamp and everything. But when we're in the middle of it, I'll tell everybody to turn it off. And we do. And it is jet black. You can see nothing. It doesn't matter how close you put your hand. You cannot see it. It is dark as dark can be. And it is absolute darkness. And so, you know, and so you go through it. It's about a quarter mile or so. And it's just a fun thing to kind of walk through. Um, But I can't imagine three days of having pitch black where you cannot see your hand in front of your face. And it says they didn't even get up from where they were. They're so disoriented at that point of all this darkness. They don't know which way is west. They don't know which, you know, what leads here and there. And it says that they sat there for three straight days. You know, they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place. And so, it's so dark there in Egypt that everybody just stayed where they, where they were. Yet there was light in Israel. Interesting. But it really kind of makes sense because God is light. And God is with Israel. And whether, when you die, you either go where God is or you go to the place where God is not. Hell is an absence of God. And so if God is light, then hell is going to be what? An absence of light. And I think that darkness that they experience is exactly what hell is going to be like. It's going to be so thick that it's going to be felt. In John three nineteen, it says, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. I, I, I take that back. I would say that the darkness is going to be like the abuso, the pit. Okay. It's going to be like the abuso, the pit, because a lot of times the Bible says hell and it just means the grave. Okay. So, um, again, but the abuso is definitely going to be dark. And so, for everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, and his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. First John 1 John 1.5, this is a message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. See, if you end up in the place of darkness, it's because you love darkness now. You love darkness now. If, you, if, if what you want is what you want, that is not what God wants, okay? So 
To walk in darkness means you are going to do what you want to do. And that's what it is to walk in darkness. But when it comes to God, God is requiring and saying, look, you need to receive my son. And when you do, you have received the light and you have become children of light. And children of light are going to deny themselves daily, pick up the cross and follow him because he is the light. Nobody, God doesn't send anyone to hell. He sends no one to the abuso. Because you have said, I want nothing to do with God, when you say that, what you're saying is you want everything to do with darkness. So when you die, you just go to the place that you chose to be the whole time while you're here on earth. And that is that you chose to walk in darkness. And so you want nothing to do with God. You do not want a relationship with God. Well, guess what? God's not going to force you to have a relationship with him. But when you die, you go to the place that has no relationship with him. And that is hell. Okay. And it's because you've made that choice while you're here on earth. God doesn't send anybody there. The darkness is also a foreshadowing of the sin of mankind. You see that with Jesus hanging on the cross. He hung on the cross for six hours. But three of those, it was dark. It was dark. As the one sinless, perfect human being, fully God, fully man, became the sin offering for mankind. And that happened at the moment that it became dark, and it was dark for three hours. The darkness is also an attack on the sun god Ra. Sometimes they pronounce it Ray. Um, Ra represents the sunlight, warmth, and growth. It was only natural that the ancient Egyptians would believe him to be the creator of the world, as well as part of him being represented in every other god. The ancient Egyptians believed that every god should illustrate some aspect of Ra, and Ra himself should also represent every god. Ra was usually depicted in human form. He had a falcon head, um, which is crowned with a sun disc right there. Uh, this sun disk was encircled by a sacred cobra named uh, Uraeus. Um, the ancient be- Egyptians believed that as a sun god, R- uh, Ra's role was to sail across the heavens during the day in a boat. Okay, And in the morning when Ra emerged from the east, his boat's name was Majet, which means becoming strong. By the end of the day, the boat was called Semaget because it means becoming weak. And at the end of the day, it was believed that Ra died, sailed onto the underworld, leaving the moon in its place to light up the world. Ra was reborn at dawn the very next day. During his journey every day across the heavens, he fought with his main enemy, the Lord of Chaos, an evil serpent named Apep. And in some stories, Ra, in the form of a cat named Mao, which is maybe where we get meow. I don't know. It's M-A-U, okay? Um, defeats the evil serpent, Apep. This is part of the reasons why cats are revered in Egypt, because they think that that, that, that is raw, okay? Um, then it says in Exodus 10, 24, then Pharaoh called to Moses. How does Pharaoh call to Moses when it's dark? I would submit to you it's because the three days is now over. It's no longer dark. And because of that, he can now cry out to Moses. And, uh, and he does. And then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones also go with you. So everyone can now go, but you cannot bring your resources in order to make sacrifice to God. And when I was reading this, it just kind of came to me that this is kind of 
the way it is uh, when it comes to Satan himself even today. He will say, okay, you're a believer in everything else, but come on. God doesn't need your money. He owns everything. He, he's the creator of everything. He doesn't need your money. You don't have to give your finances. You don't have to give anything to the purpose of God. Just worship God. And I do believe that Satan tells people that, and they think that. I want you to go to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. In 1 Chronicles 29, King David, in wanting to further and bring glory to the kingdom of God, decides... I would like to build the temple of God. I would like to build something more permanent to be able to house the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And so David tells this to Nathan. Nathan says, that's a great idea. But then Nathan comes back and says, no, that God spoke to him and says, no, you're a man of blood. And so that's awesome that you wanted to do this. But God is saying, no, but your son Solomon will do this. Okay. So David wanting to still be a part of something great, to be a part of something with this building project. Um, he says, well, I can at least make preparations for Solomon. You know, he's young. Uh, I can get the resources. I can get all the materials. I can get everything available. So when I die, he can then use that to, to build God's house. So here in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 1, it says, Furthermore, King David said to all the assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone has chosen, God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great, because the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. Now that's interesting. Because the temple that was built, we know the presence of God was there. That after it was built, you know, they prayed. God's, uh, God came in the pillar of cloud. And it filled the place that even the priests had to kind of like walk out of, out of the temple. Because it was just so thick uh, with his presence. And so, um, so they always saw his presence by day as a pillar of cloud and then fire by night. They're in the temple and, and going outside the temple. They would see it there upon the temple. Um, and so the temple was built for God because at that point, uh, God, God did not live inside of people, okay? The Holy Spirit would kind of come and go, would be inside someone for a while and then would leave, uh, you know, but it wasn't, but uh, God didn't, uh, uh, wasn't permanently residing in any person, okay? So, um, so I'm, I'm thinking about that, and I'm kind of going, you know, Lord, the building that we're building for you now, I guess we're not really building for you because you don't dwell in buildings made with hands. The building that is built, being built right now, I personally believe, is God blessing us with a permanent home for Calvary Castle Rock. While we're here on earth. It's a place where we can come because we are told not to forsake the assembly of the brethren. So we're not really building it for God because God doesn't need a building. God is with you wherever you go. And I think we all know this, but the moment you leave here and there's no longer a believer in this building, God's not in this building. The only reason that God's here is because you're here. And you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. So I, I don't know if I'm going to, uh, because I'm just used to saying it and everything, I don't know if I'm going to be able to say from here on out, I, I want to be able to say, well, this is God's building, this is God's house, this is God's property. This, it is because all those resources come from him. But I really believe as, as we're trying to build this, it's, it's really a house for us, for his people. It's not really being built for God, it is being built for God's people to be a light to this area. Does that make sense? 
And I just don't want to misspeak because it's kind of like, you know, well, because someone could challenge me on it any time. Well, is that really God's feeling? Well, yeah. Well, God doesn't dwell with buildings made from hands. Well, okay. Yeah, that's, that's true. And it is true, you know. But whatever we do, we do for what? The glory of God. So we can still build this for his glory. And how is he going to get glory? Because we are going to be a light and a witness to other people to advance the kingdom of God. That's how. That's how. And if I made that more confusing than it needed to be, I apologize for that. Well, we can talk later. So, so anyway, so we have this temple that is being made for the Lord. And it says in verse 2, Now for the house of my God, I have prepared with all my might gold for things to be made of gold, silver for silver, you know, bronze for bronze, iron for iron, wood for wood, stone for stone, glistening stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones, marble slabs in abundance. Moreover, because I have set my affection on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God over and above all um, over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver, meaning he has collected and he's given from his own pocket. Okay, But he says here, I have set my affection on the house of my God. The word affection there is ratzah, and it means to be pleased, to be favorable to, accept favorably, to be indebted or approved, or take delight. So this could say, because I know that I'm indebted to the Lord the house of my God, or because I have set my delight on the house of my God. David understands he's indebted to God, okay, that God has blessed him so much that he's indebted to him. And that's why we've been bringing up so often in the last few months or so, if Jesus died for me, how can I not live for him? I'm so indebted and so grateful for what he has done. If he died for me, if he gave his life for me, how can I not give my life back to him and not live for him? If, because I'm indebted to him, I am grateful to him, and it should be seen in my life that I am. And so he is saying here that I'm so indebted, I'm so thankful, I'm so grateful that I gave from my own pocketbook, is what he's saying here. And so King David delights in God that he's given out his own treasury. And so he continues on in verse 4 and 5, he says, 3,000 talents of gold, gold of Ophir, uh, 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the houses, the gold for things of gold, silver the things of sil- silver, and for all kinds of work to be done by the hands of craftsmen. Who then? And then he asks a question. He says, who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? Who else is willing to give, is what he's saying, set apart to be able to bless and give. And then in verse 6, he goes on and he mentions all the leaders and the house leaders and everybody that has given. And then in verse 9 it says, Then the people rejoiced, for they had offered willingly. David wasn't given a guilt trip. He wasn't trying to force people to give or anything like that. The people rejoiced, for they had offered willingly, because with a loyal heart they offered willingly to the Lord, and King David also rejoiced greatly. You can only, give, you can only have a loyal heart if you give willingly. You cannot have a loyal heart if you give begrudgingly. You cannot have a loyal heart if you feel you're obligated to have to give. That's not what a loyal heart does. A loyal heart to God gives willingly. Gives willingly. And so here Israel also has willing hearts. So David rejoices at this. He rejoices at this. 
Now, I'm, I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking about uh, our building project and, and everything else. And I want to tell you, you guys are most amazing givers. I'm so blessed by how you guys give. I have no idea who gives. You know, I, I don't have that information. I've never had that information. Um, I'm just told uh, every week what, what has come up in the way of tithes and offerings. So I can look at the book, see what we can put aside to save for the building and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, but... David understood something that to give willingly, when it comes to giving here, the reason why we don't pass the plate is because I don't want anybody to feel obligated. I don't want anybody to feel pressured, you know. And then if, especially, and, and, and we've never done that, you know. Um, but especially uh, if we were to pass a plate and, and you don't do anything with it, you're, all those mind games happen. Uh, you know, it, you almost want to, as you pass the plate, go, I give online, just so you know. You know, I, and, and, and you probably do, you know, but you're still feeling, uh, you know, the, but they don't know that and they just think I'm a cheap rat, you know, and I, and, but, but I did, or I only have a dollar on me, but is it better to give the dollar or not give anything? If I give a dollar, then I really look cheap, but if I don't give anything, I look hard-hearted and, you know, and so we don't want any of those games. All I want is for God to touch your heart. I believe God can do anything and everything. So he's going to touch the people's hearts in order to give. I, w- I would say this. I would say that when it comes to giving, um, you, ha- you, you should give sacrificially. So Jethro was so excited about what he heard about. He gave sacrifice. He didn't borrow from somebody to do that. That was from his own stock when he gave sacrifice, okay? Because giving is sacrifice. When you look at, when you look at the widow and the widow's might, she gave all that she had. Everybody else gave out of their abundance. And that was good, but she gave all their had, which shows that Jesus is watching and he takes notice of those who give sacrificially. When you give sacrificially and you know what that is, I don't, nobody needs to come and tell you you're not giving sacrificially. God will show you what it is. He wants to give X amount of dollars every time you get paid. All right, do that. You've gotten raise after raise after raise. Guess what? What you were giving five years ago after you've gotten three raises is no longer sacrificial. It's no longer sacrificial because God has given you abundantly. The interesting thing is you can't outgive God. And so when you tighten your belt and give a little bit more sacrificially, all of a sudden God will bless. And there will come a time when you have to look at your spouse and go, you know, we really haven't changed your tithe in about five, six years or so, and yet God has done this. And you kind of go back and you pray, Lord, what would you have us give? And it's giving sacrificially. And so here with David, he rejoices and comes to verse 16. And he comes to this conclusion, O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have prepared to build your house for your holy name, all that we have given is really from your hand. It really belongs to you anyway. I'm just giving back what you have so benevolently given me. Because how is it that you have the job that you have? It's because God provided that for you. How is it that you're able to do the job? It's because God gives you the very breath that you breathe and, and, and the health that you need to be able to do that job. God has provided all that for you to do that. So when we give to God, we're just giving back what is already his. And so Pharaoh is telling him, okay, now go, go sacrifice. How can you, how can we go worship God without sacrifice? How can we go now worship and serve him when it costs us nothing? How is that possible? And, and, and so he says, no, we're not going to do that. So in verse 25 of chapter 10, Moses said, you must also give us sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice the Lord our God. How, how else can you do that? 
Our livestock also shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And even we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. Moses says animals, guess what? Those are kind of needed for sacrifice. And we need to take all of them because, well, we do not know what animals were to sacrifice until we arrive to the place the Lord is telling us to go. Verse 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me, take heed to yourself, see my face no more, for in the day that you see my face, you shall die. In other words, get away from me, if I see you again, I'll kill you. So Moses said, you have spoken well, I will never see your face again. But Moses does see Pharaoh again, but that's for chapter 12. Let's pray. 